This is the future of a live fortnightly conversation where host Santilla Chingayape talks with creative thinkers about the brave and bold ways we can make a better future. Presented by State Library Victoria. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Future Of, brought to you by State Library Victoria. My name is Santilla Chingayape and I'm the host of this series. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where the State Library is located, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and also acknowledge any Indigenous elders that might be tuning in to this conversation today. Um, so if you are new to the Future of Conversations, uh, this is episode eight. And if you want to catch up on past episodes, you can visit State Library Victoria website for uh, further information or you can stream them via whatever podcast um, platform you use. So today's conversation is one that I'm actually really excited about. You know, we talk about fashion a lot. Well, I certainly do anyway. Um, and the pandemic really made me think about my own consumption of fashion. And I'm sure a lot of people similarly were thinking about it as well. So to discuss the future of fashion and its sustainability, I'm joined by Jenna Flood, who's the founder of Ironic Minimalist and passionate about educating people on the issues surrounding fast fashion. Welcome, Jenna. Hello, thank you. Um, and just to let the audience know that if you do want to join into the conversation, uh, we you can use the hashtag SLVFuture, that's SLVFuture, and yeah, you can share your thoughts with us. Um, so Jenna, I guess I want to know, what what what's slow fashion? What does that mean? Um, well, to me, it means a lot of things. So it's not just, you know, buying from an ethical source. It's also buying secondhand or renting your clothing, uh, selling your clothing, going to clothing swaps. Um, I guess slow fashion is just being sustainable, like what's sustainable for you in regards to fashion. So if you can um, only afford to shop op shops, then that's sustainable for you. Or if you don't have the time to go to op shops, you source your secondhand fashion or your fashion a different way that's sustainable to you, then that's still sustainable fashion. So that's what it is to me, I think. Great. So how did you find your way into the world of slow fashion? Um, it really just happened. I just fell into a giant rabbit hole about minimalism after I watched the minimalist documentary on Netflix in 2017. Um, along with minimalism came, you know, where our stuff comes from, why we have so much stuff, and then slow fashion was part of that. Um, and at the time, I actually just started studying a, fashion, a stylist course at Australian Style Institute. And I noticed as we progressed through the course and I was learning about, you know, different stylists and how to style, that there wasn't anyone else doing slow fashion or looking at secondhand fashion. It was all new brands or, you know, big department stores. So I was like, okay, here's a niche and let's go for it. And then I started having clients and they asked about secondhand fashion. And I was like, there's really no one addressing this. So I did. And that's what happened. <laughs> when I was... Um researching for this conversation, I was very struck by the, uh, the the sort of impact that the fashion industry has on climate change. Mm -hmm. I, I had no idea. I think some of the data that I got from the United Nations Environment Program said that the fashion industry emits more carbon emissions than all international flight and maritime shipping combined, but it produces 20% of global wastewater and 10% of global carbon emissions. I mean, that's astounding. It is. Um, you, you sort of it's a little bit hard to connect your fashion to those statistics or who makes your garments, but the truth is that's what it is. I mean, um, 
I don't know if anyone saw the War on Waste TV series on ABC a few years ago, but there was one episode where he detailed the clothing waste in Australia. And I think it's every 10 minutes we throw out 6,000 kilograms of clothing. 6,000 kilograms of clothing. And he actually demonstrated it with a pile of clothing. And it's a lot for temp every 10 minutes. And no one knows where it goes. And it goes straight to landfill most of the time. So having that in a landfill and, you know, break, trying to break down and releasing all these harmful gases and whatever dyes were in the clothing is extremely dangerous to our health, especially when it gets into the waterways and it damages things like the Great Barrier Reef. So mm. it's really hard to connect. Yes, I understand. But when you make this connection and research a bit more, you will find that it is what happens. And aside from the environmental impact, there's also, as you pointed out, the the human cost, you know, when you think about the supply chains and the labour exploitation, we know a lot of stuff, uh, reports have been, have exposed the, 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 the Uyghur situation in China, for example, and mm-hmm. how they're being exploited. Again, you know, the, 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 you look far down the supply chain and human beings are being impacted by, you know, fashion. Yeah, I mean, uh, most of our clothing is handmade. There's, it's not all run by machines. Sure, machines help cut our clothing, but most of it is assembled by hand. I once read a statistic. I, I'm not sure where I found it now, but over 100 hands touch your garment before it gets to the shop floor. So that's a lot of hands touching a garment you think is brand new. So when people say they can't shop secondhand or it's dirty or disgusting, people have already touched your clothing. So I don't think it's much that different to buying new and shopping secondhand. But, I mean, um, 2015, I think it was, uh, the Rana Plaza accident, mm-hmm. that's what was launched. But that was um, an accident that killed many people and they knew the building was unsafe. So basically... This, this was in Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah, Bangladesh, Bangladesh. A building was full of garment workers producing for big brands and um, they had cracks in the wall and everyone was told to get out and, you know, we'll look at the cracks and see if it's safe. A few minutes later, everyone's like, all right, you can go back in. The building is safe. A few minutes later, it collapsed and killed many people. And also many of these people can no longer work or earn a living in Bangladesh, even now, because they weren't paid any money. They weren't paid, you know, any fee for loss of life or loss of limbs, so they can't work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a continuing sort of domino line, I guess, from one mm-hmm. instance. We just wanted cheap fashion, but it killed a person or it you know, damage someone's life. And I know it's very scary to think and talk about, but it's something we need to look at and face up to. Yeah. I mean, I always think about it particularly, and again, I have to acknowledge that when I do make these choices, I come from a position of some kind of economic privilege that allows me to make these sorts of, um, to to think about things in this way. But whenever I see something that is marginally uh, cheap, for lack of a better term, um, I always sort of go, someone along the supply chain is not being paid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if you you're paying $10 for a brand new t-shirt, there's something going on where costs are being cut and generally there's a human cost to that. Yeah. I guess I'm curious in this conversation, in terms of accountability, who is to blame in many ways for, for the excess, you know, the fashion industry? Is it the magazine industry? Is it us as consumers? Is it a, a, a combination of all three plus other factors? It's kind of hard to say because I think it's a combination of all these factors. I mean, um, when when we started to discover disposable things like disposable plastic, you know, it was easier to use and now we know 
that it's not so easy to use and it stays in our ecosystem for quite a long time. But when we started to discover disposable things and consumption and we had the money to spend and our, our lives sort of shifted back in, I'm going to say, you know, the 70s, 80s, I think that's sort of where it started, even the 60s, our lives became easier to get fashion this cheap. So I guess you could say when it sort of started, the fashion became cheap and the magazines were like, you know, you need to buy more. It, it, they wanted a way for the garments to be sold. They wanted a way to make money, so they're going to push it somehow. So that means you're told you need to buy something each new season or you're told you need to have this in your wardrobe to be that kind of person. And then, again, you've got the influencers <laughs> that are pushing things as well. I mean, it feels like it's just a giant circle that goes around and around and around and someone's always asking you to buy something and until you step out of someone asking you to buy something you don't really see how much you didn't need to live whatever life you want to live so I guess it comes down to you know all three it's you know your friends even your friends and family are always like oh you should buy this or I've got this and my life seems much more happier it's a case of you know um what the Joneses have on the other side of the fence, they look like they've got a great life, so you want to buy what they have. Um, it's the magazines pushing the latest trends that were also in trend 10 years ago. And then, yeah, it's definitely the fast fashion empires that have built their wealth on um, someone making garments at breakneck speed so we could have $5 tops every mm. single week. So. It's, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, you know, I'm going to acknowledge my own complicity in, in, in all of this because I have made certain choices, fashion choices, um, because I've been tar- I've, I've, I've been targeted. Again, I, I do have a choice. I don't have to necessarily buy into it, but I will see things on Instagram, for example, and I go, oh, that looks cute. And I, I don't really need it. <laughs> but in the moment, I sort of think, well, you know, I'll get it. And, and I do wonder, I mean, you did touch on this, but I do wonder how much of that targeting by the algorithms and also these uh, influencers is also contributing to this, um, I guess, desire by uh, consumers to uh, want to purchase things that they wouldn't ordinarily need. Because I, I, I'm, I'm not a shop kind of person, so I can easily walk down the high street and not go into a shop but if some if something is targeting me and it's kind of like there then I'll click and I want to look at it and I've noticed that that has shifted my own uh ways of consumption and I wonder how much technology factors into all of this as well um well I guess during COVID and the lockdowns we all started to shop a little bit more you know due to boredom or other factors but also brands noticed this and like you know places like the iconic they rose to meet these challenges. So there was a lot more targeting, a lot more asking of influencers to promote certain items. And I mean, I'm not immune to it either. There's so many things in my life that I could just click and buy, and sometimes I do. So it, it takes a lot of control to opt out of this um, sort of circle of, of buying stuff all the time. And it's it's such a difficult thing to sort of address because I know I'm quite privileged to be able to step outside and say no thank you to these things. But if all your life, you all you've ever known is buying from these certain brands and no one's told you anything different, then that's what you'll continue to do because that's what someone else before you displayed. So, yeah, it's kind of a difficult sort of thing to answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so let's let's shift the conversation a little bit mm. here. So really 
there's it's a it's a very tricky situation to be in as a consumer mm-hmm. individuals that can't really push back against these bigger structural uh, issues that are going on, particularly when you think about forced labour exploitation with the Uyghurs um, beyond regulation of the sector. So what what role and what responsibility do political institutions, for example, play in, 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 in this? You know, how much of that burden should we place on those in positions of power rather than on consumers? A lot of it is placed on consumers and it's a little bit unfair because it does seem that we're pushing back against the giant thing that's just not moving. I mean, you know, some brands have made changes and become more transparent, but it's a little hard to say if the government should take a, well, they should they should take a stance against it, but also you've got to look at, you know, the money they're making from it. And, like, if we, you know, suddenly close all the fast fashion brands down and people only had the choice to shop from secondhand or sustainable brands, could they function? Could the economy function? So I don't know if the... the I know, I know shutting big brands, fast fashion brands down isn't the only answer. It's the answer to everything. But you can, I think they need to sort of step up and start looking at where our clothing is coming from. And if if um, governments are saying, you know, support local, they're just putting that on consumers or customers. So they need to sort of take a step and say, you know, yeah. So what if there are incentives? So say, for example, there were subsidies in place for uh, locally made brands, you know, and would initiatives like that, that not only support the, the local manufacturers, but also give consumers the incentive to want to buy local, could like that be yeah. a, a way of sort of uh, trying to mitigate some of the impacts of this kind of consumerism? Yeah, well, definitely. If you look at like um, how we've been asked to travel regionally instead of, you know, trying to go overseas, I don't know if you can at the moment, but, you know, they're trying to get people to go into regional areas, especially after the bushfires and COVID. So something similar like that for um, buying Australian brands would be amazing. I don't know what sort of incentive it would be or how, or or maybe even um, the government putting more money into the manufacturing sector. Like a lot of brands still do manufacture here, but it is quite expensive, um, you know, say compared to manufacturing in China. So maybe the government stepping up and putting more money into manufacturing here to enable uh, the prices to be maybe slightly lower or something so people can buy more Australian goods would be beneficial for the economy and for us. Yeah. Mm. So if if the focus is not just on sust- the sustainable side of the industry, but also the ethical side of the industry, so, you know, a lot of communities around the world rely on, um, you know, the wages that they earn from working for fast fashion mm-hmm. companies, is another way that, you know, a government like the Australian government can put pressure on some of these governments to ensure that at least the workers' rights are protected within these uh, sectors? Is that is that something that, you know, our government could potentially step in to sort of lobby for at an international level where you can sort of see a situation where even if you are working in a factory in Bangladesh or, you know, um, whether it's the, the the human rights violations that are happening to the Uyghurs in China, you know, where the government can actually um, condemn some of these practices, you know, number one, but number two, also sort of lobby for fairer worker rights and compensation. I mean, are these some of the things that we should also be talking about? Definitely. I mean, I don't think getting rid of fast fashion is the answer because that would leave a lot of whole, a lot of people jobless and not being able to support their families. Um, but there needs to be some sort of regulation, as you say, that helps these people overseas who are making our clothing 
to earn more or to be part of a union or to even have basic human rights such as being allowed to visit their children more than once a year or um, you know maternity leave they don't get those sort of things because the factories essentially with a supply chain a buyer will try and cut down on the cost so they can have more garments for their store at a cheaper price and you can only cut down so much on fabric and you know shipping it's where the cut comes when the person is making the garment so mm. um, also like over COVID a lot of uh, factories um, you know had these bulk orders and they usually fulfilled them or they were close to fulfilling them and then the factories were like we were not going to pay you because we can't sell the goods so I know there was some laws brought in to protect factories like that but definitely more needs to be taken by governments and um, officials to step up and say we need a change for this and not always put on the consumer because you know we get sick and tired of making these choices and not seeing any results and sometimes it's nice just to buy what we want without thinking about the whole supply chain and where it came from and who my money is supporting so you know as you said definitely something that helps that our government would help um you know identifying factories overseas that would be paid the garment workers would be paid you know a living wage um oxfam is doing great steps in this sort of area as well they've been doing a what she makes campaign um and bringing to the spotlight about how much people garment workers do earn an hour so i think that's really good and hopefully governments will jump in on things like this i, I really think it needs to be done again it's sort of a it's hard to get there. What about the fashion industry? I mean, what what responsibility do they have in all of this? I mean, you mentioned before the seasonal changes of outputs. I think, uh, I think from my understanding that there used to be at least two or three seasons a year. Now there's like um, multiple yeah. seasons. I don't know. If, I, I know that we only have four, but apparently in the fashion world, there's more than four. Um, so, so you've got that situation where you you're putting out more clothing than people need, but also in terms of um, I, I wonder in terms of are there initiatives that the fashion sector could employ that perhaps um, tell consumers where their clothes are being made or who's making them or what sort of sustainable ethical practices are involved in, in that garment so that when you are making the choice, you're at least cognizant of what you're buying. Well, there are some brands that are stepping up and doing that. Um, there's Outland Denim, which is actually supports um I cannot remember the country they are made in. I'm going to say India, but they actually support uh, sex workers. So oh, it's Cambodia. Cambodia, yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and they are supporting sex workers and giving them um, a better chance and building factories and, and places where they can actually earn a living wage. And I think on their label it details all that, um, just the same as it would in Australia made. It details where your money is going and what you're supporting um, and how they're building a better future for these people um but yeah I think there needs a bit more transparency I think um like similar to almost food labeling laws where it says like you know 98% of this yeah. is Australian made um why it's kind of hard to say because you don't as much as I want to support Australian made I also do want to give a living wage to these people overseas who are making my clothing so I'm not going to say I always support Australian made but if I'm going to spend my money overseas I want it to be for a brand that's doing good and changing um, changing something or putting laws together or supporting something that will bring about um, a better life for these people and just 
just a basic living wage. That's all they're asking for. So they can, you know, not go hungry and not uh, see their children. And I just think it's unfair. It's we have all these amazing rights here in Australia and then you head overseas and they're being forced to do things like this or just so we can have something cheaper here in Australia where we have a lot of wealth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so uh, let's, uh, I'm, I'm interested in the impact that the pandemic has had on, on the fashion industry. I mean, do you think it has forced some kind of reckoning about all of this? Do you think the fashion industry, or, or is it just more of the same, really? I think um, with the pandemic, it made things easier to shop online. You had more time. Most people had more time to shop online. So they bought more things. Um, there's still the pretty little, I know I shouldn't name brands, but you know, there's still the the boohoo and the pretty little um, whatever they are, pretty little things of the world that sell bikini bottoms for less than a dollar. Um, oh, really? Wow. Yes, yes, um, yes. <laughs> wow. So uh, I think someone's still going to be there to buy all these sort of things that brands are selling and they're still going to show that they've bought all these things for less than $10. Um, but I think I'm hoping, especially with the, um, the lockdown, the pandemic, people started to realise where their money went and what they were, maybe their lifestyles changed. I know my lifestyle changed a little bit and it made me appreciate the things I do have and it made me realise where I was spending some of my money and what I could live without, especially when people's um, incomes were disrupted. So I do think there was some mind sh- mindset shifts but also when everything came sort of back to normal, people were craving that normalness instead of always thinking about the disaster ahead for the pandemic. I know I'm talking about Australia mostly here, but I know there's still like, you know, lockdowns going on all over the, over the world. So I think people sort of sometimes went back to normal and still shopped and still bought a lot of things because they could and because they felt they had events to go to or they just wanted a sense of normalcy back mm. instead of feeling like they had no control. Because I know for me during lockdown, my control was what came into the house. So I was buying a lot of things because that was something I could control, whereas mm. I couldn't control what was happening in other parts of my life. So I think that might have been the same for a lot of people. Um, but I, some, speaking to some people, I've noticed that attitudes have changed and that they're looking at different ways to buy things. They're looking at maybe buying organic food or using less plastic or something has sparked and whatever that thing has sparked and changed in their mindset, they are acting on it. So I think there has been a lot of change, but on the seesaw end, maybe there's not been a lot of changes. It's a little hard to say. I'm kind of sometimes in a sustainable bubble where Mm. I live. So, but I have noticed a lot more people coming into mutual muse and selling their clothing and embracing the idea of secondhand clothing, which is fantastic. Mm. Mm. It's it's funny. I mean, I, I even prior to the pandemic, I was already shifting my my relationship to fashion was already changing. I, I don't know if it's an age thing where you get to a point where you want your clothes to just be very practical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and at the same time, I sort of thought if I am going to be wearing the same thing, I do want it to be made well, and I want it to obviously last me for a, a decent amount of time, and I don't have to replace it. But also, I again acknowledge that I I'm in a position where I can make those sorts of choices, and I wonder. Again, because, you know, when I think about, particularly in Victoria, we spent quite a large part of last year at home, working from home. A lot of us weren't really wearing the things that we would ordinarily wear. And, and, I, and, I, and I do wonder if they, they, there has been a, genu- a, a, a shift of sorts in terms of what, where we're placing our value in terms of what we wear. 
Yeah, I think there definitely has been. And again, I think it does come with age. I mean, when I was young, I'd just buy anything that I could get my hands on, especially when I had a disposable income. Um, but as I got older, there definitely was a shift. So I think um, when big events happen, like, you know, getting older or a lockdown, uh, my shift does change. And we had more time, you know, to watch things that we couldn't watch before or read things we couldn't read before. And that may have been where their mindset mind, um, mindset changed. They shifted to, you know, different view, points of view or they they had time to research, I feel, a lot of people did to sort of take their minds off other events that were happening. So they dig deeper into something they always wanted to think, always wanted to look at. I know I did that a few times and just sort of research more into things. And then my mindset, mindset changed about something. I mean, yeah. it's sort of, yeah, yeah. It's, you, it's such an individual think, thing. Yeah. Do you, do you think that political movements have also impacted fashion? Cause I'm thinking about last year, the black lives matter movement. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, forced a reckoning of sorts across all all industries. And I remember consciously sort of saying to the thinking, you know, if I am going to be spending my money on things, I do want to ensure that I am, you know, spending putting a lot of my money back into communities that have been marginalised and 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 are heavily impacted by, um, you know, by economic uncertainty. And when it comes to particularly here in Australia, you know, I've been very conscious and tried to, in, you know, buy as much from Indigenous-owned businesses, for mm. example, or businesses run by women or, you know, those sorts of things. I'm, I'm kind of finding myself more conscious of and seeking them out. And that's become a part of how I'm now approaching how I'm spending my money. Do you think that sort of political movements are also impacting how, 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 what we buy when it comes to fashion? Definitely. I mean, not even just political movements, like um, things like um, the bushfires that happened. You know, the government was like, you know, support these wineries or there was a whole website set up to support these sort of areas. And then when lockdown happened, people wanted to support their local takeaway places. I mean, there was a whole Facebook group dedicated to the Brunswick um, takeaway places and where you could buy this and that. And people would share what they had eaten that night. Um, supporting their local and like getting fruit and veggies from places other than supermarkets so yeah definitely movements help change people's mindsets um it's all about what flicks a switch in someone's brain so when i say sustainable fashion someone could just turn off and not even like don't even care but if i said oh, a financial way or if i changed it so it was more of a financial viewpoint they could be like oh i'd love to save money on clothes Oh, I'd love to get my clothes secondhand because it's cheaper, but they're still participating in sustainable fashion. So it's all about the mindset of people and who, like you're talking about supporting communities. So I think that people want to support their communities more. So they definitely seek out ways to buy things that they normally would buy at a different place to support more of their community. Um, definitely changes like that. Um, even like a David um, Attenborough, documentary or something sparks change as well so I think when these big events happen not just political they definitely do spark a change in people's mind and how they mm. shop and what they do and like it may not all happen at once and it may happen just in little bits and pieces but it's all a good change and something we want to support yeah and just very quickly uh before we run out of time this is a future looking series and I'm also interested in just touching on some of the innovations that have come out as a result of all of this I, I've been reading a lot about 
how there's a garment factory in Italy that I read about recently that's repurposing um, old clothes and using the, the the fibers out of that and reselling that back to fashion brands so that they can reuse and recycle these materials so they're not ending up in landfill. And I wonder if you could just touch on some of the more innovative sort of things that are coming out as a result of the conversations around sustainability. Yeah, so there's there's a lot. Um, People are finding more ways to do things with different fibres. I mean, there's, you know, leather alternatives made from, you know, cactus or um, I read one about the other day was um, the leftover leftover product from the wine industry. They were making handbags out of it as a vegan leather alternative. So I definitely think that's amazing. And then, yeah, you're looking at uh, factories that are using the scraps of the floor to make blankets or something and then selling those blankets and supporting refugees. So there's so many different things that are happening um, and it does take support and time. It's not going to just start up instantly. It takes support from people like us and it takes support from governments maybe with initiatives or something. There's definitely lots happening. Um, recycling of clothing um, into other fibres um, is a big one. And also uh, the brand ABCH, they're looking at different ways to um, compost their fabrics at the end of life cycle. At work, we're looking at different ways we can support brands by um, maybe taking their older clothes and giving the people a voucher to buy something new for their wardrobe. Um, we're looking at different ways we can um, collaborate with brands so they can take back their clothing and sell it onto someone else who might really want that item but just can't afford it from the sustainable brand. There's so much going on in so many different areas that it's almost hard to keep track of. And like even there's, um, I think it's blockchain that allows you to see the entire supply chain of the piece of the garment that you've just bought. So there's so many sort of little bits and pieces, but my favourites are definitely, as a vegan, <laughs> my favourites are definitely definitely um, the leather alternatives and the wool alternatives and just seeing the changes that happen when someone puts their mind to it and seeing um, the changes that also happen in bigger brands when someone puts their mind to it because they see it happening at a smaller scale. And, you know, they jump on and like, oh, we can actually make a change with this, like even Gucci and sort of brands like Stella McCartney embracing that change in fashion which it's amazing there's so much more to look forward to and when you start researching there's so much you can see well thank you for that's a very encouraging note to end the conversation on um thank you so much for joining me jenna it's been just such a pleasure to pick your brain about all things uh, slow fashion and thank you to our audience that have tuned in uh, to this conversation, also to previous conversations. Um, the future of is taking a bit of a pause, um, but I would also like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to the team that make this conversation series possible every fortnight. Um, the genius behind this, Claire Portek. Thank you, Richie and James as well, um, who do a marvellous job behind the scenes every fortnight to ensure that this uh, these conversations reach you wherever you are, whether it's online or via your podcast apps. Um, so my name is Until Chingaiba. It's been a pleasure hosting this series and we will see you sometime soon. The Future Of is a fortnightly conversation produced by State Library Victoria. To help make a brighter future for the series, please subscribe, rate, leave a review or share it with your friends. You've been listening to The Future Of. To find out more, visit slv.vic.gov.au and search for The Future Of.